You ready, sir? Mm-hmm. Let's get our blood pumping with the introductory song. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Tuesday Night Podcast. I'm Alan Gerding, and this is the podcast all about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, around, and under the gaming table. And with me, Stephen Medway. And if you haven't heard of Stephen Medway, you're going to right now. Also, <laughs> you're probably going to know Stephen Medway from the game Blood on the Clock Tower, which is killing it. Yeah. Killing it on Kickstarter, right? Meow. How you doing, Stephen? I'm feeling good. I'm in the middle of breakfast and talking to you. Now, I want to ask you a couple of things about Blood on the Clock Tower and what it feels like to be Shut Up and Sit Down's Quentin Smith's, quote, favorite game, end quote, because that's what he said on the video that you've shared on your Kickstarter and also that he put up. They totally broke the rules with Blood on the Clock Tower. Normally, they don't do any videos for games that aren't yet published, but they love your game so much they broke that rule. I also just want to hang out with you. So what do you want to do? You want to hang out or should we get Blood in the Clock Tower out of the way for all of our knaves, which is what we call our listeners? If you would like to talk about Blood in the Clock Tower for a little bit, and then we can go wherever you want. That sounds great. So Blood in the Clock Tower. This is my really quick explanation of Blood on the Clock Tower, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong. The easiest way to think of Blood on the Clock Tower is you can help influence the beat. Imagine Werewolf with a whole bunch of roles, with no elimination, and the host is an active participant. So therefore, it's much more interactive than your typical vanilla game of Werewolf, and even more interactive than Ultimate Werewolf, because how many roles do you have? You have what, 99 roles? So how many characters do you have, do you know? In the Kickstarter, we have uh, 99. I'm working on roll 100. We shall see whether that happens. Man, my recommendation, podcast host. All they do is they host a <laughs> podcast of the game while they're playing. There you go, boom. Roll 100 done. You're welcome, Alan yeah. Gerding. Contribute all credit. I will pass that suggestion on to the appropriate people. <laughs> okay. But yeah, the ex all the expansions bring it up to about 200, so there's a ton, an absolute ton of roles. The roles themselves have been designed specifically to be interactive, to be fun for the player, fun for the storyteller, but also to interact with the other characters in the game. Whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're learning due to your character ability, you're never doing that in isolation. There's always an incentive to go and talk to the other players to find out the other two-thirds of the puzzle. Every ability that you have only gives you a certain amount of information. You have to go out and you have to talk to other people and find out who's telling the truth, who's lying, who's drunk, who's poisoned, who's sober to get the rest of the picture. So there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah, you mentioned drunk, poisoned, sober, etc. Not only are there characters, but there's status effects going on. For instance, I remember I've played once. I played mm. at PAX Unplugged in Philly. Philadelphia. And one of the things I remember that was interesting, 
was how the voting went for elimination. Because classic werewolf, you have the day phase where people vote who they want eliminated. Then you have the night phase where the evil characters wake up and they kill people or other people do their powers, etc. But in this one, the host, who is your sister Eden, which was a great host, came in and she stood in the middle and she did this thing where she went in a clockwise rotation pointing from one player to the next, meaning you had a vote by the time the clock the host was pointing at you and that was it. But it was this nice, concise way of now we're voting. You have to get your vote in while the clock hands on you or you don't get a vote. Is that correct? That is correct. It's, um, it's just a nice, it's a nice thematic, but also really functional way of just telling the vote. It was born out of frustration, actually. I was running games where you could just put your hand up and hand down all over the time, all over the place, rather. You'd be halfway through counting votes. This is, this is the old method. You'd be halfway through counting votes and then you'd have to recount because people had changed their mind. A friend of mine, Kevin, just sort of stepped in and said, nah, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it this way. Came up with the clock method and said, all right, I'm going around the circle. Put your hand up. If you miss out, you miss out. That's how we've done it ever since. Yeah, because this podcast is all about the stories we make while playing the games we love. I want to know your story of how you got involved. You already shared one really cool story, and that was your friend Kevin, I believe you said his name was? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen Kevin in a couple of years, but we were we were pretty close at the time. So. Well, Kevin, if you're listening to this now, thanks for the clock tower <laughs> method of counting votes. Steven appreciates it, and so do all of us backers for Blood on the Clock Tower. But how did you go from playing werewolf and getting frustrated to, you know what, let's keep on tweaking this and publish our own game? Because there's a big adventure going from, let's just tweak a few rules here and there, to we have a brand new game on our hands. How'd you get from point A to point B? I played a all-night werewolf game at a friend of mine, Tony's place, and Tony would run werewolf games. I'd never played werewolf before. A game would last an hour. We'd start at eight at night. We'd play to eight in the morning. I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. After a couple of sessions, I just, I wanted to play a different style of game. I wanted to play a game where there was a, a, just a huge amount of information. A game with a, you could have a lower player count, five, six, seven, eight, nine players, and everyone, every single player had some type of information. You knew that someone was evil, or you knew that someone was good, or you knew that someone, a particular different types of characters had voted or not voted. I wanted to put as much information into the game as possible so that every single player had something to go on. In Werewolf, there's a character called the Seer. You learn if a, if a player is the werewolf or not. And I wanted to make every, every single player, even the evil players, have as much, as much engagement and as much juice to go on as possible. That's where everything began. And I wanted everybody to play to the end, so I included ghosts in the game and then just gradually built things up and built things up and built things up. Created a whole bunch of characters. There's been hundreds or thousands over the last few years and then just got rid of everything that wasn't working and then really, really focused on character interactions. Not just, as I was saying before, not just characters in isolation. I have this power and I'm acting on my own, but characters that work in combination with other characters because that, that encourages players to talk, to be engaged, to form teams, to form trust. And yeah, it sort of just grew piece by piece over days and weeks and months and years and has become the sort of the monster that it is today. So how many years has it been since the initial first change in adapting? It's been about five years. Not bad, sir. Not bad at all. 
And when did you realize, I think we have something worth publishing, or did it start off with that goal in mind? Oh, I didn't. It didn't start off with publishing, actually. I just wanted to make a game. I've been making games for about 10 years. Ooh. I just I make games for myself and my friends. I, I make what I want to play, not what I think will sell. Which is incredible for you to say, because it is very difficult to get a home run on Kickstarter, and yet you have. Yeah, we've, we're absolutely nailing it. I'm just going to be so bold to say, shut up and sit down had a lot to do with it, because I know from personal experience with Two Rooms and a Boom, when shut up and sit down says, we like this game, all of a sudden people start checking your game out. They have an incredible pull in the industry, but they had to find out about it first. How was it that the crew from Shut Up and Sit Down found themselves playing Blood in the Clock Tower and then fell in love? Shut Up and Sit Down have been a really huge boost. I'd say probably the majority of our uh, Kickstarter backers have come directly from Shut Up and Sit Down. We funded slightly before their review dropped, but again, a lot of that would have been people who were expecting that review to drop. Yeah, I was on the mailing list myself. Yeah, yeah. The first time I heard about it was at Shucks because I was running my own games of Fairy Tale Betrayal and Thingy and these other games that I'm playtesting myself. And then next to me, I see people running Blood on the Clock Tower. And I couldn't help but think, what the, what the crap is Blood on the Clock Tower? It looks like Circles of Werewolf. What the hell is this? <laughs> and then that same Shucks, they talked during Shucks in one of the panels and they said, Oh my goodness, have you played Blood on the Clock Tower? It's terrific. Obviously, I'm not one of the crew members of Shut Up and Sit Down because I'm paraphrasing and saying it in a much less eloquent way than they actually said. But how did it even up shucks? Like, how did this get into the sniper scope? I was shipped off like an intern by my crew to head to head to shucks. And at the time, I didn't know... Uh, I didn't know who Matt and Quinn were. I didn't know um, the convention. I didn't know anything. I basically just turned up with the instruction, run some games for people at this convention. We were, we were going pretty well and uh, people were asking to play. Some of the staff wanted to play. The Shut Up and Sit Down crew wanted to play a game and I just, I just started running and they looked at the character sheets and I remember them saying, ah, oh, this looks a bit shit. <laughs> 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 Did you know who they were while they were playing, or was it until afterwards? Uh, the beginning of the the beginning of the game, I was sort of introduced. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, cool. I'll I'll do my best to run a game for you guys. You know, you're organizing the convention, so I want to do. I want I want to make your convention a fun place to be. So it is it is an honor and a privilege and a pleasure for me to run a game for the people who are creating the convention. So, but yeah, I I, I don't really know many people in the industry, but yeah. It's a bit shit. <laughs> but yeah, and they, they, had a, they had a blast. It was, um, it was a pretty good game. Everyone was joyfully at each other's throats for about um, an hour, an hour, 10 minutes. And it was, um, it, was, it was just a fun experience. And then afterwards, uh, when they raved about it, that was when the, sort of, the doors opened and the opportunities um, sort of came to fruition. So. Who is the marketing genius that sent you to Shucks to play with Matt and Quinn's? Because obviously this is a team effort. Um, yeah, absolutely. That would, be, uh, that would be my team as a whole, but particularly uh, Evan Donahue, who said, uh, go to Shucks, run some games. Um, we're doing the convention circuit. We've done PAX, PAX Unplugged, PAX East. But he just said, go to Shucks. We've got some friends in Vancouver who you can stay with. It'll be fun on the way to Essen. And then Essen was not quite what I expected. 
Wow, you went to Essen before. Were you hosting at Essen? Yeah, we were hosting at Essen, but you can um, you can put all the credit uh, for that for the Shucks decision onto Evan. He's got a really, really, really good sense of the next step. Now let's digress from Blood on the Clock Tower a little bit mm. because you tickled my fancy when you've said you've made many games just for fun. <laughs> Are you willing to talk about any of those games? Are you willing to talk about the games that you uh, that you have designed but never quite made it? <laughs> I am, but I see your point there. I was just wondering if any of them made it. Have I played a Stephen Medway game prior to Blood in the Clock Tower and not even realize it? No, I think that's not. my more important question. No. I have so many games that are shit that <laughs> I could fill an entire podcast just about it. Like every episode yeah. could just be a design that I've just thrown away or shelved. Oh, man. I'll tell you one right now was yeah. Go Fish in a Barrel. <laughs> <laughs> which was a modified version of Go Fish because one of my favorite games is Play-Doh 3000 and it's basically gin rummy with abilities. And so I thought, yeah. oh my goodness, does this work for all card games? If we can just take some classic card games and put abilities in, does it take it to the next level? So I tried it with Go Fish in the Barrel and I realized, oh no, go shit. <laughs> <laughs> go shit. <laughs> go shit. Go fish is still a, hor a horrible game. Just total Freudian slip there. But that's basically it. It's like, okay. In the core, Gin Rummy is a phenomenal game. I still love Gin Rummy alone. Go fish is a horrible game. As my yeah. father once told me, you can't buff a turd. He said that when mm. I got this hand-me-down piece of crap car. And I was like, man... Maybe I should get a new sound system. I get some interior lights. Just totally trick my ride out. Mm. And he said, son, calm down. You can't buff a turd. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the way it was for Go Fish. I realized, oh, there's nothing here. So that's one of my failed stories. Yeah. Just awful. Yeah. <laughs> and and you, you, you just, you never know. You have, you have these, you have a great idea. And you know, you know that it's the best idea in the genre that anyone has ever had and you just you just need the opportunity to get people engaged with this idea and then you do it and you're totally wrong and you find out that it's that you're yeah that it's a turd <laughs> 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 and we don't name we don't name names and we move on and we hopefully do better but i mean everyone, everyone's yeah. got their own process like you can go a priori and just create something in your head and put it onto paper and it's all perfect or you can just start with start with a dog and refine and refine and play test and change and alter and yeah and just you just end up end up with a with a monster that was nothing that looks nothing like your original vision but works so i've been told that there's three overly simplified approaches to game design one you just mentioned and that's just Refine, refine, refine until a game no longer looks like its original game. Refinement, refinement, refinement until you realize, bingo, I've got a brand new game that people are going to love. It's superior. Then there's the one where you have mechanics in mind, where you say, I want to build the best deck building game or drafting game, or basically you think mechanically first. And then the other approach, the third and last one, which I love, is a feeling. This one's more emotional we put this challenge out there what are some actually scary board games because there's definitely scary movies out there that when you go and watch this movie you're scared and that's what you're paying for you're paying for that rush of epinephrine when you ah, 
get scared and creepy. But are there any board or card games that actually evoke that? And I think the answer is yes, there is. But imagine designing with that main goal in mind, that feeling of fear or that feeling of creativity. I think that's where you have to start with that idea to some degree. You have to know roughly what are the emotions, what is the basic experience that I'm trying to generate, not dictate, but what is the narrative that I'm trying to create, and then start in with your mechanics and your snipping and your creativity and your player feedback and the rest of it. There's a, there's a game called Last Night on Earth. I know it. I know it well. I've been running Last Night on Earth for, well, like about six, uh, about seven years or so. Flying Frog Productions, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and it's just, it is nail-biting. It, it, has, it has the fear. It's little pieces on a board, but you get so absolutely involved because the stakes are so high. You make your own stakes, and it's, um, that's one of the few games that has the fear. You know what we usually do? We like to torture our guests by giving them an elevator pitch challenge. Mm -hmm. And the elevator pitch challenge is you have to describe the spirit of a game, what we're talking about right now, the feeling you get in just a minute because you're trying to sell it to someone on an elevator. So you don't want to waste too much time with game mechanics and nitty gritty rules. Instead, it's how do you sell this game to someone in just 60 seconds or less? Mm. Do you think you can do that for Last Night on Earth? For Last Night on Earth? Okay, my 60-second elevator pitch for Last Night on Earth. Give me a, give me a what is Are you going to do it? Because I, yeah. have, I have a twist. Because that would be too easy. I said we have to torture you. Yeah, sure. Great. <laughs> you get a character that you have to be. So it's not just you giving an elevator pitch for Last Night on Earth. <laughs> oh, I, I have to do it. Uh, okay, so this is like a theater sports thing where I'm, I'm saying it in Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. I'll absolutely butcher the accent. Can we do it without the twist? <laughs> we can try to do it without the twist. You are Stephen Medway, someone who has a very successful Kickstarter live right now for Blood on the Clock Tower, and you don't want to talk about your game, Blood on the Clock Tower, because everyone wants to talk about Blood on the Clock Tower. All you want to talk about is Last Night on Earth. You think you can do that, Stephen? Absolutely. Last Night on Earth is a zombie horror survival game. And unlike other board games, this game has the fear. You're not fighting the zombies. You're not mowing down the zombies. You're running away from the zombies. You're an everyday townsfolk, a high school quarterback or a prom queen or a mechanic in the local shop. And every single game, uh, scenario-based, comes down to the wire. It is thrilling. It is horrifying. Uh, you, need to, you need to work as a team to achieve your mission objective. Every single game that I have played of Last Night on Earth has been an absolutely exhilarating experience, um, working as a team to just survive. And if you survive, that's a win. That was wonderful. Wonderfully timed, too. You are a cool cat. You talked very minimally about the mechanics and how it made you feel as we've been talking about. Yeah, it's, uh, it was much more on emotion and not as much on theme, but it was a one minute improvisation, so. It was good. It was what it was. And now I wanna go play The Last Night on Earth. I heartily recommend it, it's, it's a great game, really great. Have you done any of the other games by Flying Frog Productions? Because when I think of Flying Frog Productions, I think of 
how they have these actors that they take pictures of and that's their card art. So these actors and costumes and whatnot. Am I crazy? Isn't that Flying Frog Productions? Yep, yep. There was, ah, oh, I played one other one, but I, was, I just wasn't, wasn't so fond of it. It was, it was Last Night on Earth, but Last Night on Earth did everything that it was trying to do just much, much, much better. Yeah, that's the other thing, which you might even be experiencing with Blood on the Clock Tower, is this type of cannibalization. Because there's card drafting games, and so many. But whenever I play a card drafting game, I'm automatically comparing it to all the other card drafting games I've ever played. And most of the time, when I'm playing a card drafting game, I think I'd much rather be playing whatever the other card drafting game is that's better than that. So maybe, for many people, after they play Blood on the Clock Tower... You might ruin them for other <laughs> werewolf-like games. So how does that mantle feel? Has anyone walked up to you yet and said, Hey man, you ruined werewolf for me. Because <laughs> now anytime I play werewolf, I keep thinking, Why isn't it Blood on the Clock Tower playing? Um, I have. and I've, Really? I've, yeah, yeah. But um, it, the, the sample's incredibly biased. I'm going to be talking to people who keep coming back wanting to play. I'm not talking to people who um, think that Blood on the Clock Tower is the buffed turd and Werewolf is the absolute best thing. <laughs> right. For me, I mean, like, like I said before, I've designed the game that I want to play. It's always going to be, in my eyes, of course, you know, the greatest game that ever there was because if it isn't, then I'll change the design so that it is. But that's obviously my opinion and that's a biased opinion. Well, I feel very fortunate that Sean and I made Two Rooms and a Boom because when it comes to Two Rooms and a Boom, it's so radically different than Werewolf that there's plenty of times after playing Two Rooms and a Boom, I'll say, all right, let's 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 go play some Werewolf because yeah. you're walking and talking the entire time with Two Rooms and a Boom. But I really yeah. love just sitting down and chilling out in a circle. So Werewolf can do that. Blood in the Clock character can do that as well. I think that making the comparison is useful. Because it highlights similarities and it also is is interesting historically to know where things come from. But I think the comparisons are unfair. Like Doom, the original original first-person shooter came out. A lot of other games were coming out. They were called Doom clones. And if you you look at first-person shooters as Doom clones and comparing it to Doom, I just don't think it's a fair comparison. For me personally, I'd rather play Doom than a modern FPS just because I like that old-school fast-paced vibe. Steven, you're singing my song here because I've put so many hours in a Doom Doom 2. No joke, Doom 2, I still have almost all of the levels memorized. It gets a little difficult at the end because I would play that game for hours and hours and hours with my father because we would have our computers network together. And that was before most kids even knew that was possible. I'd have so many kids come over from school and be like, wait, your computers are hooked together? What do you mean? We can play on separate comp- What? They didn't even know about it. And we did that for years. (laughs) Sorry, all that just to geek out and say, yes, I still love Doom. I mean, different games can be have very, very similar mechanics and yet be doing the actual experience of playing and the core idea of what they're trying to do are totally different. Like with Two Rooms in a Boom, you've, you've got a massive multiplayer party game verbal coordination thing where everyone has to pick a side and manipulate the game setup of who is where and wh- who is where and what is happening. Every single person has a role to play and it's a, it's a really fun, exhilarating, time-bound party experience. 
Because even what you said earlier is true too. Everyone has a fraction of the information and only by working together can you truly unravel what the heck is going on. And it's one of the things that's really hard to explain to new players is you're going to be confused and you have to get comfortable with that and try to get over your confusion by working with others. Otherwise, you're just going to be in this confusion spiral. Yeah, it, it, and that, that is exactly how I ex explain Blood on the Clock Tower to a new player who is confused. I usually say, you're confused, that's great. If you're confused, that means that there's a lot of information happening. You're not just sitting there bored. There's a lot of information happening and you're trying to sift through that information. The game is about sifting through that information. So you're, you're on the right track. Find others that help you turn that confusion into certainty. And of course, it's the evil player's role to make sure that that certainty is totally unwarranted. What Blood on the Clock Tower does is massive amounts of information, inductive and deductive reasoning, because the information that you have as a group is not certain. Some of it is certain, some of it is, isn't. So you, you have to come together as a team to solve a murder mystery. I look at it much like sort of Clue or an, an Agatha Christie. I think what Werewolf is doing is much more... Intuition, shooting in the dark. It's much more intuitive, body language based. You base your decisions on what players do. All right, this player voted for this player, that must mean this. And you're, you're using your intuition and your observation skills to make decisions. Whereas in Blood on the Clock Tower, the information is given to you due to your character. You know, if you're the Raven Keeper, you have to trick the demon into killing you. And that's how you get your information. So you need to go out and manipulate people so that you can get the benefit. The experience is very, very different. And I, I think every social deduction game is trying to do something slightly different. But I, th I think each one does does their own thing better than any other game in the genre, and probably does something not as good as uh, not as good as they would like as well. We're running out of time, unfortunately, mm -hmm. and there is one obligatory thing that we need to do. So uh, let me ask you this question: When you do these games on your own at home, and I know you're all the way in Australia, what kind of printing services do you have available? <laughs> to help you print out prototypes. Are you doing your own graphic design and cutting them out on paper? How are you coming up with these components? Um, I, do, I do my own graphic design on Photoshop. I'm not a, I'm not a professional. I just... Um... Me too. So many people make fun of me for Photoshop <laughs> because it's meant for editing photos. It's the only one I know. Yeah, I can't yeah. figure out Illustrator. I can't do even InDesign. And so many people make fun of me, including my nemesis, Lindsay Road. Mm. But anyway... Yes, so I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, you you do the, the best that you can with the tools that you have. I've got a I've got a local printer that I just I pr sticky tape, scissors, cardboard, and a local office you know office work style printer. I have some bittersweet news for you, Stephen, because it's time for sponsor spot, and you might not like it. Sponsors, yay! Thank you for sponsoring us. Send us free stuff for money. We'll talk about your stuff, but only if we like it. <laughs> Steven, in the States, we have thegamecrafter.com, which does all of that stuff so easy. All you have to do is not even go to the printer. You just take your Photoshop files, Illustrator files, whatever files you really want, as long as you can save it as a PDF, a PNG, and you just upload it into thegamecrafter.com, order it, and seriously, if you do urgent, I've recently put in an order because I had this event that I was running at Ravenwood Castle. I just talked about it last episode. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. So I did this huge werewolf thing at Ravenwood Castle. 
episode 174, and I realized, oh crap, I made a mistake on some of the cards, so I needed to rush a new print order. The event started on Friday. I didn't put in the order until Saturday before, so we're talking six days Realistically, five if you think of mail service. Realistically, four because there is no mail on Sunday. Four days to get this. And they did it. They did it. I got it on freaking Tuesday afternoon. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Beautiful, professionally made components. And sure enough, at the castle, people really loved the cards. They assumed it was a officially published game. No idea that I had just done it through one simple company, thegamecrafter.com. And I'm sorry you don't have that available in Australia, but I also want to tell you, you can probably do that. If you have your American contacts or if you're doing more Penny Arcade Expos pack shows here, you can totally just take advantage of it while you're in town. What do you think? If they had something like that in Australia, would you use it? I would I would absolutely use it if it was um, accessible. The way that we do things in Australia is that we spread everything that is easy out over a massive, massive geographical distance. Um, so if, if something is like Gamecrafter is online and you can just go click, 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 absolutely fantastic. I would, um, I would totally recommend something like that. If it's, if it's a person you can talk to down the road or within 30 minutes, which is in Australia, a rarity, absolutely go for it. It's all online. It's a self-contained thing, and they have online help support right there and then. So if you have any questions, literally a chat bubble comes up. Hey, well, what's going on? You have any problems? Type in, bit, bam, boom. It's totally online. Dude, if we ever hang out, like this is almost frustrating because mm. you were at Shucks running. That was you, and that was me, meaning the person that I saw running Blood on the Clock Tower that was you, meaning we were both there at the same time. We probably even made eye contact and didn't even know who the other person was. Ooh. So total missed opportunities there. But if we get to hang out, and I'm sure we will, I can totally show you the GameCrafter.com. And it's a tease. It's it probably a waste of your time until they get a GameCrafter.com in Australia because it is... I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't thoroughly believe in it. I'm always interested in excellent tools to achieve what you want. Stephen, thank you so much for being a show with me. I, it, has, it, has been a, it has been a real pleasure. And um, my big joy is actually running games and designing games. So if, if we're ever in the same place at the same time, um, please get in contact and I'll, I'll run some lovely, lovely, lovely games. We are absolutely going to do that. I'm very confident. Well, we already talked enough about Blood in the Clock Tower. It's really easy to find on Kickstarter. It's one of the top projects of all time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going gangbusters. It's, it's really going well. When I looked this morning, you were at over 300,000 with not quite yet 2,000 backers. I have no idea what it's at at the time of this podcast release, but already over 300,000, already almost 2,000 backers. I prefer the Australian dollar amount because we can say half a million um, because of the exchange rate. <laughs> wow. Well, what else should everyone know about you? Social media? If you're looking to find out more about the game, probably the Blood on the Clock Tower website and wiki are great. The wiki is huge. I've been uh, writing it with my technical manager, Amy, for months. And it has, it's a massive, massive, massive strategy advice archive. So if you really want to know about the game, the rule books are available on the Kickstarter and check out the wiki. 
uh, bloodonthecocktail.com slash wiki. Pretty much everything's available through the Kickstarter. So if you check out the Kickstarter, you're going to find all of those links there. And if you want to reach the podcast, please email us your comments, questions, concerns, podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. Spelled with a K. And if you want to follow us on social media, please do so. We're at PlayTKG. If you really like our show and you want to help us out, the best way to do it is by giving us all the stars on iTunes because that helps listeners like you become knaves like you. And I think with that being said, this episode is... Finish. <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> I am.